The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Job as a pastor was to preach, and preaching is an interesting thing. It's a it's a heralding of truth. It's a proclaiming of God's word. I was interacting with a friend this week uh, just about ministry and one of the things that I said is that to him, as I said, it seems that God would have it where there'd be a, po- a point in the week on the Lord's Day when we assemble as a church where we would all come before God's Word and really close our mouths and just listen to God's Word. And God would speak to us and we would humbly uh, submit to His Word. And that's really what preaching is, is where we come under God's Word together. That's really the goal of preaching, that we'd be changed by God's word. And so let's just ask the Lord for help as we move into this time of our worship service. Heavenly Father, we recognize that your word is priceless, it's perfect. We believe it's inerrant. It has no errors, that it's inspired, literally breathed out by God. And we come to it and we submit to it, surrender to it like no other book on the planet. That this is a word from you And so help us to rightly honor it in our hearts, rightly respect it. And I pray as we study it together this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Please make us more like Christ, we pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the passages that I want to regularly keep before us as a congregation is the passage known as the Great Commission. Of course, it's a well-known passage, and it should be. It's found at the end of Matthew chapter 28. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to just be reminded of this great text at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. If you would open up there, I'll begin reading in verse 16 and reading through the end of the chapter. This is the climax of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, or Matthew writes this, verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, that is Jesus, resurrected, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We might say that these are Jesus' marching orders to his disciples, to the church. And he says, look, All authority has been given to me now, and here is what I want you to do. You're to go out and make disciples. That's the command. Make disciples. And Jesus explains how we are to do that. He says we make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means we've evangelized people, we've won them to Christ, and then we baptize them, marking them as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, teaching them also to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. This is how we make disciples. We we share the gospel. We spread the good news of Jesus Christ. When people are one to the faith, we baptize them. And then this begins this lifelong process of teaching others to obey all the things that Christ has commanded. And I would just say, for, for the faithful Christian, this is not optional. This is what we're all commanded to do as Christians. We are to be about this work of making disciples, spreading the gospel, seeing them baptized, and then just teaching them again and again and building people up in the faith. That's what we are called to do. And so to be a faithful Christian means that we should take this text very serious, which means we should be each one of us engaged in gospel ministry. That we would not only be evangelizing, but also helping others grow in Christ-likeness, uh, teaching them to obey the things that Christ has commanded. We must, as Christians, be engaged in encouraging others and discipling others. We should all be involved in this work in, in some capacity. 
We must be working to influence others for Christ inside the church and outside the church. This is the responsibility of every Christian, and every true Christian will take this very seriously. Again, it's not optional. We may struggle to be faithful to this command at at seasons of our life. We, We may prove to be rather faithless in this personal ministry that's been given to us. But despite our failures in the past, we must constantly be striving for faithfulness in this great command that Christ has given to us. And as Christians who sadly often we waver in our commitment to Christ and we we waver and end up not being faithful in our Christian service, sometimes it's helpful to have examples, examples of those who failed but then later came and were faithful. And as we think of those in the New Testament who left behind challenging examples of faithfulness, our minds are quickly drawn to men like the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul and and others like them. But this morning, as we prepare to study the Gospel of Mark, I would like us to consider a somewhat unknown figure in the New Testament. This, of course, would be none other than the author of the Gospel of Mark, a man sometimes we refer to as John Mark. This morning, I'd like you to be reminded of a man who failed significantly in his Christian life, but did not let that failure define him. Mark does not play a prominent role in the storyline of the expansion of the Gospel in the first century, but he did offer significant service to three men who really did play a leading role in the spread of the gospel and the spread of the early church. Three of the great leaders of the early church leaned heavily upon Mark for assistance and friendship. We know that John Mark was the traveling partner of Barnabas. Peter also acknowledged Mark to be one of his affectionate disciples. And Paul considered him to be a valuable servant and a useful friend. So Mark lacked the personal greatness of these other men, but he had the gift of making himself very useful to key leaders in the early church. And so this morning, as a bit of an introduction to the Gospel of Mark, I'd like us to consider the impact of the life of this man. I think we do well to consider his life and witness. And by tracing the biblical evidence that we have about this man's ministry, and may it be an encouragement to each one of us. So first, let us consider just Mark's name. Mark's name, as you may know, he has two of them. Sometimes we refer to him as John Mark. But it's not as if John was his first name and Mark was his middle name or his last name. No, no John was his Jewish name and Mark was his Latin name. This is a somewhat common practice for Jews who lived in the regions which were Greek-speaking. For example, Paul was known by his Jewish name Saul in Jewish regions, and then later in the book of Acts, he's referred to as Paul as he goes into Gentile missions work, we might say. And so it seems that Mark would either go by John or by Mark, depending on the region that he was in. Among Jewish circles in the book of Acts, he's called John, or sometimes John, who is called Mark. Later on, we find him operating in Gentiles' lands, and he's just referred to as Mark. But we ask, well, what do we know about this man? The Bible specifically mentions this man, John Mark, nine times. And most are in the book of Acts, but he's also mentioned once in Colossians, 2 Timothy, Philemon, and also in 1 Peter. But we're first introduced to him in Acts 12, verse 12. And I'd invite you to turn your, there with me in your Bible. Turn to Acts chapter 12 and look at beginning in verse 12. We're jumping into the middle of Luke's history of the apostolic spread of the gospel. And we find Peter having been miraculously freed from prison by the work of an angel. We'll not read that, but that's what just happened. In verse 11, as Peter sort of comes to his senses, he states, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And now look what happens beginning in verse, in verse 12, Acts chapter 
12, verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where they were gathered together and were praying. And when Peter knocked on the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and she recognized Peter's voice. Because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is an angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when, when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So implicitly through this account that happens in Jerusalem, well, we learn some interesting details about this man, John Mark. Based on the chronology of the book of Acts, we know this incident occurred around A.D. 44. That would have been roughly 11 years after Christ was crucified and resurrected. And after being bound in prison for Peter's preaching, and then he was miraculously released from prison by the angel, Peter then goes to the house of Mary, the text says. Mary, that is the mother of John, or John called Mark. Apparently, this Mary was a widow because there's no mention of Mark's father. Her residence was called the, the house of Mary, indicating that there was no husband and thus no father of John Mark at this time. And there's a few remarkable things to note about this residence, which likely would have been the home that Mark grew up in. First, it seems that the family lived in a somewhat comfortable financial situation. The house was large enough to hold a small gathering of Christians. They had at least one servant, we know. The, the, the house had a gated perimeter. And this all suggests that Mark came from a well-to-do family. And a well-to-do family that also leveraged their wealth for the sake of gospel influence. So, and secondly, we might note that it's clear that Mark's home served as a strategic, social, and religious gathering point for these early Christians. Mary graciously opened up her home for church gatherings. Imagine, when, when Peter was freed from prison and was being searched for by Herod, Peter knew exactly where the Christians would be. He knew they would be at Mary's house. So you see, Peter was such a frequent guest of Mark's home or Mary's home that even the servant girl, when Peter knocked on the door, heard his voice and knew it was the Apostle Peter. Therefore, I think we can acknowledge that, that Mark came from good spiritual stock, we might say. This Mary was a faithful Christian. In times when persecution was breaking out, and even one of their leaders was imprisoned, the temptation would have been for everyone just to run and hide. Not to invite the church over to your house, but that's what Mary did. She opened up her church in this time of persecution. So it seems even in difficult times, the house of Mark was open for fellowship. And in that home, this sort of center for early Christian activity, Mary bravely hosted an earnest prayer gathering on behalf of Peter. So we'd say in that home, spiritual priorities and values really reigned in the home. And so with this sort of woman, this sort of matriarch leading this home, maybe we should not be surprised to see the type of man that John Mark would become. Imagine the excitement that Mark would have had being able to witness this firsthand in his home, hearing Peter come, hearing about how he was miraculously freed from prison, how the Lord worked mightily. And just imagine this young man learning and gaining this information from him. We don't know anything about how this young man, Mark, became a Christian, but we can be certain that he regularly heard the preaching of the gospel, perhaps even in his own living room. Some 20 years later, 
the Apostle Peter would refer to Mark affectionately as my son. Perhaps that's an indication that Mark came to Christ through the preaching of Peter uh, in Peter's ministry. We can't be certain of that, of course, but I would think it would have been very likely that Mark himself would have been a part of that prayer gathering in Mary's house, in Mark's own house that evening. And just imagine just the indelible impression that would have left upon this young man. I think we can be certain that it would have stimulated his faith in Christ, strengthening him for the Lord's work. Though, we will acknowledge, Mark was not without his weaknesses, as we shall soon see. Later on, in Acts chapter 12, we find another reference to this John Mark. At this time, in Jerusalem, there was a severe famine, a famine in the land, and Christians in the northern city of Antioch sent funds down to Jerusalem. And the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to oversee the distribution of these funds. And it's likely that Paul and Barnabas could have lodged in Mark's very house, or the house of Mary. We learn from Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, that Barnabas was actually Mark's cousin, Mark's older cousin. So Mary, the mother of Mark, would have been the aunt of Barnabas. So it seems obvious that when Paul and Barnabas came south to Jerusalem, they would have stayed with Barnabas's ministry-minded aunt, Mary. And this would have given Mark the invaluable opportunity of spending time with Saul or Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And when Paul and Barnabas's work was complete there in Jerusalem, and as they returned to Antioch, they brought Mark along with them. Look at Acts 12 verse 25. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who's also called Mark. And so just imagine the opportunity given to this young man. He's invited along by his honored cousin and the apostle Paul, and Mark would have then been journeying with them and ministering with them in sort of an apprentice-like role, learning the ropes of ministry from these two men, seeing God work mighty miracles and seeing many Gentiles come to faith. We see Mark referenced again in chapter 13, verse 5, but Look back at verse 1 of chapter 13, just for the context here. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And note this, they also had John as their helper. So the leaders of the church of Antioch commissioned Paul and Barnabas for gospel ministry, sent out by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and they would travel to the the island of Cyprus. And this is the beginnings of what we call often uh, the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. And we know that John Mark was invited along as their helper, to function as their assistant in the ministry. Mark, it seems, served under the the, the direction of these missionaries. He was their underling, we might say, perhaps performing various tasks appointed to him. We can only speculate as to what that work would have looked like for Mark that he would have been doing at the bequest of his older cousin Barnabas and the Apostle Paul. Perhaps it was his responsibility to prepare accommodations, to to prepare meals. Uh, Perhaps he was uh, doing something of a more spiritual nature. Perhaps he was hanging around around the the Apostle Paul's preaching and he would be discipling those who had questions. Uh, We really don't know. We know that it wasn't Paul's 
tendency to baptize converts. He didn't like to do that himself, so perhaps John was doing that for him, or John Mark was doing the baptizing. We know that the time, when the time came for them to depart from Cyrus, Cyprus, uh, the missionary band, led by the apostle Paul, went north, uh, to the, crossed the sea to go up into Asia Minor, or what we, make, we might call today modern Turkey. And we see this in verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companion put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And now note what comes next. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So they had arrived at this city in modern-day Turkey, but it seems shortly thereafter, Mark left. And Luke, the author of the, this book of Acts, does not say why Mark left. But we can un, uh, definitely understand by the Apostle Paul's later response in the book of Acts that Ma, Paul found Mark's sudden departure to be wholly unwarranted. Paul did not approve of Mark going back home to Jerusalem. And again, speculation really abounds as to the reason behind this premature exit from this missionary work. Perhaps we might say he was simply tired and homesick. We know he was younger. It seems like a bit of a slight to say this, but perhaps he just missed his mother and needed to be back. It would be a very human reason for going back home. Perhaps it was just simply a lack of courage in Mark. The proposed travel route that the Apostle Paul was leading them on took them directly through some rather treacherous mountain passes, passes that were notoriously robber-infested. Paul would later write about the dangers and perils that he went through in crossing various rivers, trying to dodge thieves, living out in the open wilderness, and so perhaps Mark was a bit more accustomed to what we might say a bit more cultured lifestyle. And the thought of going through the mountains like this may have just been too much for him. But whatever the case, the initial excitement of this short-term missionary trip had worn off for Mark. And he decided it was time to pack it up and head back home. You would say endurance was needed for this work, and for Mark, for whatever reason, endurance was lacking. And so in this moment of trial, this promising young ministry assistant faltered. He, he gathered his belongings, and he headed back home. And as humans and fallen sinners, we'll acknowledge that our motives are rarely sort of monocausal. Our motives are often complex. We might assume the same for Mark, but whatever the reason behind Mark's abandonment of his cousin and his leader, Paul, we can certainly call it a failure in Mark's life. John Mark was wrong. A moral deficiency in his character was exposed. And so imagine Mark returning to the safety of his mother's house there in Jerusalem, uh, re returning to his customary line of work, ample time to just consider his choices. You see, John Mark was a disciple of Christ, but he was not without heirs. He was not perfect, we might say. And like all of us, he was a work in progress. And God was not through with him yet. Yes, he had failed, he had sinned, but now he had the opportunity of considering how he would respond to this failure, to learn from his mistake and grow. We might say to repent. I'm reminded of Proverbs 24, 16, which says, A righteous man falls seven times and rises again. And it seems that's what Mark did. You see, so often in life as Christians, when we sin, we have a choice to make. We can either be depressed and sort of wallow in our poor decision and sulk in the consequences of our sin and then make a, another bad choice to sin again and then just the complications and consequences begin to multiply in life. It's really one of the ways that depression comes upon individuals. Just bad choice after bad choice, consequence after consequence, rather than saying, I need to respond rightly, repent of my sin, and get back on track. Thankfully, it seems that's what Barnabas did. 
So when a year or so later, when the Barnabas and Paul returned to Jerusalem to settle this doctrinal controversy, controversy outlined in Acts chapter 15, sometimes we call it the Jerusalem Council, at that point, we know that Mark did not avoid his cousin Barnabas. We know this because when Paul and Barnabas decided to go out again on another missionary journey, Barnabas was ready to take Mark with him. Look with me beginning in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Look there. 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and who had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, so Barnabas, Mark's older cousin, who, whose name in fact means son of encouragement, was ready to give Mark another shot. But Paul would have none of it. He was too exacting and too resolute, we might say. And so a sharp disagreement, the text says, occurred between Paul and Barnabas, and they split paths. Mark had become sort of the unwitting cause for the breaking up of this faithful missionary partnership. Bible scholar Edmund Hebert helpfully describes this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Let me read it to you. It says this. Hebert writes, Paul and Barnabas each had a slice of truth in which he felt he could not compromise on. Paul felt it would endanger the success of his campaign to take along one who had shown himself unreliable in crisis. A general cannot afford to plan his campaign around undependable men. But Barnabas, true to his gracious and helpful nature, felt that Mark should not be thrown aside without giving him another chance. Characteristically, Barnabas looked beyond the present failure to discern the promise of recovery and future usefulness. Mark was fortunate indeed to have a friend such as Barnabas who, with love and patience, helped him to overcome his failures. Paul's sharp rebuke undoubtedly shook Mark's complacency concerning the gravity of his defection. It made him realize the seriousness of his responsibility and the far-reaching possible consequences of his unfaithfulness. He came to see that Christian service requires that a man be found faithful, end quote. I think that's exactly right. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when, when Paul would say, of himself, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, or we might say one be found faithful. That's what every really Christian should be found to be, faithful, trustworthy, dependable in the work of the Lord. And so it was Mark's lack of faithfulness, his failure in this regard that would shape his future, but it would not define him permanently. The encourager, Barnabas, took Mark and returned to Cyprus. And I just think it's interesting to note how God uses different saints with different giftings. You have a, a man like Barnabas who's an encourager coming alongside this young man. But then you have a, a leader like Paul saying, no, the mission's moving ahead and you're not coming. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with either choice. Just God uses us differently and encourages and leads in different ways. But we would say in the long run, Barnabas was right about Mark. He does prove to be faithful. But Paul and Silas now traveled north to visit the churches previously established. And for the next 11 or 12 years, the scriptures are silent about John Mark. His name does not appear again in the book of Acts. 
And in the remainder of the New Testament, Mark's name only occurs four times. And all four times indicate that Mark really had a turn, that he changed, that he grew to be more and more faithful and was fully restored to service. During the Apostle Paul's first Roman imprisonment, we find Mark once again ministering alongside the Apostle Paul. We see this in the book of Colossians and the letter to Philemon, both written by Paul from a Roman prison. So turn with me over to the book of Colossians. Turn to the, to the right in your Bible after Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And Mark is referenced in chapter 4, verse 10, but look with me beginning in verse 7. Paul now has come to the end of his letter and he closes his epistle with a, a bit of a personal greeting. Look now at Colossians 4, verse 7. He says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brethren and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of our number, they will inform you about the whole of the situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you've received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who's called Justice. These are, only, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. So clearly, Paul and John Mark were now fully reconciled for, Mark, or for Paul to write this about Mark. And Paul refers to Mark, along with these other noted men, as being an, an encouragement to Paul in his imprisonment. They were fellow workers for the kingdom of God, Paul writes. And then at the end of verse 10, it even is suggested that Paul had given a specific task to Mark. We find a shorter but similar reference to Mark in the letter to Philemon. There, Mark's name is simply read in a list of other notable co-laborers. And we're really not told anything about the process that unfolded for Mark to regain this sort of place of holding Paul's confidence and approval. But it's clear that Paul held no permanent grudge against this young disciple. Mark had proven himself faithful, and Paul gladly welcomed him back into his inner circle. Undoubtedly, the Lord had used Paul's earlier rejection of Mark as a form of discipline to strengthen the character and the, just the godliness of Mark. Mark was sanctified as a result of his earlier failure. He, he was now a, a more useful vessel for the sake of Christ. Paul's final reference to John Mark comes at the end of his final letter, Paul's final letter, which is 2 Timothy. Please turn over there with me, just a couple pages in your Bible to the right. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes as a man destined for martyrdom. He's once again in Roman chains at the end of the life, and now we find Paul summoning John Mark to him. Look what Paul says, writing to Timothy, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Look what he says. Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to, Dal to Dal Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark, bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Unquestionably, Paul now is placing a great value uh, on this man, Mark, this man who some 20 years earlier had deserted him, had, had left him in a lurch, we might say. And really, what greater commendation can now be given to Mark than to be called to a, a dying man's side or a man who's about to be martyred? Paul wanted Mark to come to him. Paul said of him, he's useful 
for me in the service or for service. That was true of Mark. So forgetting what Mark was in his earlier years, now in the eyes of Paul, Mark was preeminently useful for gospel ministry. He was dedicated and effective for the cause of Christ. Paul felt that Mark was just the man now needed for this work in Rome. In the Bible, we always find Mark in these subordinate roles. He, he contentedly served in the background, coming behind uh, the leading charge of others. We have no indication that Mark ever desired a role that would have given him any sort of public prominence in the cause of Christ. He had just mastered the ability of rendering invaluable service to those who led the charge in ministry to Christ. He faithfully served with Barnabas, with Paul, and as we already mentioned, he also served with Peter. We see the final New Testament reference to John Mark in 1 Peter. Please turn with me now to 1 Peter. Continue turning right in your Bible. After the book of Hebrews, then James, then we come to 1 Peter. And Peter wrote this epistle some three or four years before Paul wrote 2 Timothy. And at this time, it appears that Mark was faithfully serving alongside Peter in the city of Rome. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. Peter writes, closing out his letter, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. The reference to Babylon is widely considered to be a cryptic reference to the city of Rome. Peter wrote from Rome, and he was accompanied by John Mark, whom he also sends a greeting for. And as we've seen, Peter refers to him as my son. Definitely a term of affection, perhaps indicating again that Peter had led Mark to Christ. But we know here that Mark was in Rome with Peter ministering. We know, Paul once, we know Paul, once when he was earlier imprisoned, uh, references John Mark. And then we know Paul was released. Later, Peter and John then make their way to Rome. And then later, Paul finds himself in prison again there. And he eventually calls Mark back to Rome. So this is all interesting and important for us to note. We know that Mark was useful to both of these men and useful to this ministry in the city of Rome. Perhaps we might say he was closer with Peter. Several accounts from early church history assert that Mark wrote his gospel account under the direct influence of Peter. Mark compiled his information about Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he recalled Peter's teaching about Christ. There are many themes and intentional threads that weave their way through the, the gospel of Mark, but one of them is that Mark is displayed as this, or Mark displays Christ as this perfect servant. It's really a key theme. Christ came as a servant. A key verse in the gospel of Mark is Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And how fitting is it that God would use the pen of Mark, this man who, who had such a notable early failure, but then proved to be such a faithful servant to Christ himself, God would choose him to record the Son of God as this untiring, committed servant to mankind. So in recording the Gospel of Mark, really Mark left us his greatest contribution. His greatest act of service was recording the Gospel of Mark for us. Because of his efforts, we have one of the four precious accounts of the life of our Savior. And as we prepare to launch into this study in the weeks and months ahead of the Gospel of Mark, I think a few other introductory comments are appropriate. In regard to when Mark wrote the Gospel, common scholarship places this book written sometime in the mid to late 60s, AD 60s. 
However, we don't possess the exact time that Mark wrote. In regards to authorship, although nowhere in the book is it directly attested to Mark, the uniform tradition of church history is that Mark wrote the gospel as the attendant of Peter. The earliest direct witness from church history recorded late, sometime late in the first century or perhaps early second century come from the account of a man named Papias who was the bishop of Hierapolis. And he wrote this following. Note this quote from church history, an ancient document. It says this, And the elder, that's a reference to John we know, used to say this, Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately as many things as he remembered, not indeed in order of the things spoken and done by the Lord. For he neither heard the Lord, nor did he follow him. But afterwards, as I said, he followed Peter, who used to give his teachings according to the needs of his hearers. So then Mark made no mistake in thus recording some things as he remembered them, for he made it his one concern not to omit in anything of the things he heard, nor to falsify anything in them, in quotes. That's a quote from church history from Papias. Again, first century or perhaps early second century. And there's some things for us to note there about what he said. According to this man Papias, who had learned from the apostle John, Mark was not a personal follower of Christ. He didn't follow Christ when Jesus walked on the earth, perhaps because he was too young. But Mark was a close companion of Peter and was well accustomed to Peter's teaching and his preaching, particularly Peter's preaching about Christ. And so Mark recorded accurately the things he learned from Peter, but he also notes, Papias, that he does not always give us a strict chronology in his recording of his gospel. Papias also calls Mark the interpreter of Peter. Interesting note, the meaning of interpreter is debated. It could mean that Mark translated for Peter, but that is perhaps unlikely because we know both of those men would have been bilingual. Uh, another, perhaps by this in term, interpreter, Papias meant that Mark faithfully recorded the teachings of Peter in Mark's gospel account. And as another piece of evidence that Mark wrote under the influence of the apostle Peter, comes in A.D. 150 from a, a man or a figure from church history known as Justin Martyr. And he quoted from Mark chapter 3, verse 17, and Justin refers to it as being found in the memoirs of Peter. So according to Justin Martyr, the gospel of Mark was called the memoirs of Peter. So as we read and study Mark, we should be hearing, in a way, Peter's voice. Their reflection of Peter's teaching and Peter's recollection of his life with Christ. Many other pieces of church history could be cited to establish the fact that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark and indeed having been heavily influenced by Peter. As we've seen, there's strong evidence that Mark sat under the teaching of Peter in Jerusalem. We find that in the book of Acts. But it's also likely that Mark would have sat underneath Peter's teaching in Rome as well. 1 Peter 5, verse 13, as we've seen, makes that a likely conclusion. Therefore, it's quite likely that Mark wrote his gospel account in Rome. Evidence for this conclusion is supported by an interesting tangential piece of evidence given in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. In that verse, Mark refers to Simon of Cyrene, a man, as you know, who was charged with carrying the cross of Christ. But in that verse, Mark refers uh, to Simon of Cyrene uh, a very, in a very unique way. He refers to him as the father of Alexander and of Rufus. Just kind of an odd note as you're reading through the Gospel of Mark. But obviously Mark would have known who those men were. And also Mark's audience would have known who those men were. And it's interesting, we find in Mark's writing to the church in Rome, the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 13, Paul also references the man Rufus. 
So this indicates that Mark had an awareness of some of the members of the Church of Rome, and that he even so that he referenced them, references them in his gospel. And this likely means that Mark wrote specifically for the church in Rome. And I think this is an important point for us to consider. Mark wrote to the Romans, and particularly Roman Christians. But we also know this because as Mark wrote, it seems that he's writing to a Greek-speaking audience that did not know Aramaic. For this reason, in Mark's gospel, Mark regularly explains Aramaic phrases. For example, in Mark 5.41, Mark gives the account of Jesus healing a little girl, and he writes, Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithakum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. So this translation of an Aramaic phrase uh, this sort of thing happens several times in Mark, and it indicates that Mark knew he was writing to people who did not know Aramaic. We also know that Mark wrote to an audience that was familiar with Christianity. For example, in Mark's gospel, Mark uses various titles to refer to Jesus. He refers to him as the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Man. And, and when Mark does, he does not explain what those phrases mean. He assumes his readers understands them. Mark does not explain what the term the word means when he uses it as, as a synonymous term for the gospel. Mark does not explain what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Mark does not give background information on important figures that we find in the gospel, like John the Baptist. He, he does, also does not give much detail about specific places uh, that would have been important in the early church and that they would have all been aware of. So it's, it's apparent that Mark's readers were familiar with the Old Testament to some degree and also possessed considerable knowledge about Christianity and even Judaism to some degree. And so all of this indicates that the original audience of Mark consisted primarily of Gentile Christians who would have been familiar with both religions. That being said, the Gospel of Mark makes for a great evangelistic resource. As we seek to complete the Great Commission and be faithful to that task, Mark is incredibly helpful towards that end. It's, as you know, the shortest Gospel account, only 16 chapters. It's fast-moving, it's succinct, it's powerful and vivid in its details of Christ. Mark does assume some background knowledge of Christian concepts and uh, familiarity with the Old Testament, but not nearly as much as Matthew does or John does. And so it's a great book to read through with an unbelieving friend. And in the months ahead, as we make our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, just imagine if all of us members of our church, if we set out to find one person to read and study this gospel with, one believer perhaps, or, or even just someone in our church to just work through and talk through this gospel account of Mark. Imagine the amount of impact we could have for Christ if we just let the word of God wash over people as we studied it with them. The gospel of Mark is a great place to introduce someone to Christ. Let me read to you a story from an average pastor named David Helm in a book, he, he writes this. While living in Chicago, I became acquainted with a man who was hardworking and highly educated, but who had never encountered the gospel. As we got to know each other over time, we began to talk of spiritual things. He began attending church on occasion, eventually even volunteering to help me with some logistics for a new ministry our church planned to start. My friend remained faithful in this task for many months. After a year, I asked him if he had any interest in reading the Bible with me. While he was hesitant at first, he agreed to meet together to talk about the idea. For the next three months, we read the Gospel of Mark together in a corner of a local Barnes & Noble coffee shop near his office. He always carried his Bible in a plain envelope, I assumed to, to avoid the embarrassment of being seen with a Bible. My friend is a trained scientist at a local university, 
At first, it was hard to keep the discussion on the text before us. He often wandered into the, wandered into the muddy waters of the relationship between science and faith. But over time, the nature of his questions began to change. No longer was he worried about whether or not he could remain a scientist if he were to become a Christian. Instead, he began wondering what to make of the authority of Jesus to forgive sins and make man's relationship right with God. For weeks, I thought he was close to becoming a Christian, but he still hesitated. And then, one week, it all just occurred naturally. He gave his life to Christ, and I had the privilege of baptizing him into the Christian faith a few weeks later. The author then asked, what made the difference in his life? Was it in an event geared toward winning him to Jesus? No, it really wasn't. Neither was it a program or a class. It was something more organic, more relational. It took more than a year, but my friend became a Christian. It was the power of the Holy Spirit uniting this man's heart to the truth of the gospel found in God's word in the context of a simple relationship in which we give ourselves to reading the Bible together, end quote. I think that is very normal for people just to come to Christ by encountering God's word. That's actually even how the Bible speaks of it itself. People are come to Christ by hearing the word of Christ Born again, Peter writes, by the living, enduring word of God. In our evangelism, we present the truth of God's word to people. And I have found in my life the most effective and fruitful evangelism just comes when we just pour God's word over someone again and again and again. So I I leave you with that as sort of a challenge. Uh, Let's not study the book of Mark as an academic resource. Let's study it for the sake of allowing it to change our lives and allowing it to equip us for gospel ministry. And may we reach out to others, and perhaps many of us, engage in gospel meetings and conversations, reading the Bible with unbelievers. To that end, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this man, Mark, John Mark. Uh, What a great example for us he is. Uh, We thank you that you, you saw fit to record his failure for us, and also his redemption in his life and how he served you faithfully in the end after such a great failure. Father, we go through many such failures, small and large in our life, and we need the reminder that we too need to return and put our hand back to the plow and get busy in the work of making disciples as you've called us to do. So I pray, Lord, as we set out in the gospel of Mark that you would use it to strengthen us, equip us, make us more like Christ, make us more fruitful and useful and effective in service to you. And then, Lord, would you help us to use it evangelistically as we reach out and witness to others. Lord, through our study of this book, not only may we be sanctified, but may our church grow through conversions as people are won to Christ by our members taking the gospel of Mark and really all of God's word to other people. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we.